pleasure today to introduce Michael Hurlston. Michael is the CEO of Synaptics, a phenomenal tech company. I'm not going to introduce him more than that because I'm going to let him tell his story. But Michael, let me sit down and, and maybe let's start with that first question. What is Synaptics? What do you guys do? Why okay, do all right, all right. So uh, one at one time, many, many years ago, it was interesting coming into Boehner Hall. I actually went, was in Boehner Hall as a student I remember there was a coffee machine. They don't have coffee machines anymore. Sitting in the corner of the far, far corner. And uh, I remember it was a, actually a great, great example of students at that particular time. We had an open book, open note test in thermodynamics, which was a fairly difficult course in those days. And uh, the teacher, one of one of the one of my buddies was in a fraternity, and he had a bunch of tests, and so we had enough nickels. There were four different guys, four colleagues that we had in the class. We only had enough nickels for three copies of the test, so we made three copies of the test. One person didn't get the copy of the test. It turned out that the test that we actually got that day was identical to one of the tests that we got. So. Three people got A pluses. One person got an F, and that person was very pissed off for the rest of the semester. It was a quarter. It was pretty bad stuff. But anyway, yeah, I did go to Davis. I was uh, an engineering student. Uh, I graduated with uh, a BS in electrical engineering, and then went on to get a master's in electrical engineering. At the same time, it was actually possible to get an MBA. So I had a dual program as I got my MS. I got an MS and an MBA. So I was in Davis for six years and, and loved every minute of it. I, I tried to get out, but they, they wouldn't let me. And I wouldn't let myself. I was having a lot of fun. Um, I started my career. I, I'm, I was an electrical engineer. I was doing semiconductors. And I've spent almost the entire entirety of my career as a semiconductor, somebody involved in that business. And you probably, if you've been following the news for the past couple of years, heard a lot about the semiconductor industry. There was a lot of shortages and we were knocking out car automotive builds. We were knocking out computer builds. Everything was, was falling short because of problems in the semiconductor supply chain. That's where all these supply chain issues really started was the semiconductor business. Um, but the first, I don't know, 10 years of my career, I was involved in startups. I was doing a lot of semiconductor startups and like many of you thinking about how to, to do the next great thing. And I had my share of successes of a bunch of the companies that I was involved with, either IPO'd, went on out of the public market or were bought. And so I, I thought at the time, I can do no wrong. I'm kind of a, a genius. The first three companies, of course, it was nothing to do with me, nothing whatsoever, but I thought I was a genius. So I went to found a company uh, in, the, in the height of what we called the dot-com era, which was the late 90s, late 1990s. And that company was probably the only company that failed. It failed miserably. So I had both sides of the equation at a relatively young age. I'd seen all these successes and then had a massive, massive flame out when I tried to do things myself. If, if you look in the MBA textbooks, I did everything backwards, right? And of course, it didn't work all that well. Um, 
Anyway, then I went on to, to a company called Broadcom, which is a big, big semiconductor player and was there for multiple years, mostly on Wi-Fi. We were sort of the engine behind all the things that you're doing today on your laptops. We kind of invented the Wi-Fi technology and brought it to market. When we started in, in the business, there was no such thing as, as Wi-Fi 15 years ago or whatever it is. And now it's, it's unbelievably ubiquitous. So we had a tremendous amount of success, obviously, in that business. From Broadcom, I went on to run an AI company, small software company, and then uh, I became the CEO of a public, big public company called Finisar, doing optical. We were doing optical networking. And then finally, as Aaron said, just about three years ago, I joined a company called Synaptics, which is a semiconductor company. And our primary product, what we're most known for, are the touchpads. We do all the underlying technology on your laptops, the touchpads, and on the phones, the touch controllers that make resolve where you put your finger on, on the phone. There's a lot of complexity in all of that. It's about a revenue of about 1.7, 1.8 billion US dollars. And we have about 1,800 people all over the world, India, China, Israel, the United Kingdom. It's a fairly diverse engineering group, but um, it's, uh, it's an interesting company because we're involved in lots of different areas of the market, PCs, as I said, phones, we have our products in automotive, a lot of consumer devices, things like drones, wireless access points. We have a lot of different technology and a lot of different end markets that we, we end up going into. So awesome. long answer, Aaron, sorry. No, 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 I love it. So you're all over the place. You're touching a lot of, of, of products, a lot of tools, a lot of toys. Um, I mean, it, my, my next question I anticipated was asking about the future of these directions, but each one of these has a different future all of itself. So maybe if I refine that question, when you think about synaptics going into the future, which products or which technologies have you most excited? Where, where do you see the world really changing going forward? Yeah, I mean, look, I think this, uh, this concept of artificial intelligence is huge. Every technology company in one way, shape or form is trying to find a way to make a difference in AI. And we're no different than that. So our take on AI, if you think about the way artificial intelligence works today, most of artificial intelligence calculations are happening in big data centers. If you think about face recognition, or you think about DNA sequencing, or you think about some of these big, big problems, they happen in the data center, which takes a tremendous amount of power and a tremendous amount of compute to successfully attack these problems. Our idea is that simpler problems, simpler AI problems can actually be resolved on a chip at the very edge of the network, rather than having to travel back and forth to the data center to do the compute, we can actually do it on the chip itself, which creates a whole bunch of new and interesting problems like how to make a model, a machine learning model, that's gonna compile directly into a semiconductor device and do something reasonable. We, we don't think we could ever do something like face recognition, some really, really complicated problem, but things like people counting or license plate reading or something like that, we think we could do 
on a semiconductor on the edge of a network rather than having to go back and forth to the data center. So AI is a big play. We have almost any one of our products, we, we, we have some element of, of AI in there. Sometimes it's just a marketing term, Aaron, but in a lot of cases it's it's real. And this, this one I think is a problem that is a big one. We, we want to make sure that we reduce the power consumption because these data centers are obviously taking a huge amount of energy if we can do more, push more of the problem to the edge of a network and not have to go back and forth to the data center, I think that's a big, a big deal. Awesome. So, uh, you know, when I think about AI and those technologies, it's still very software heavy. You mentioned a lot of the hardware devices you're plugged into and edge computing. Um, how do you think about being a hardware and a software company? Are there conflicts there, challenges, complements, opportunities? Yeah, almost every semiconductor company, hardware company now today is has a huge amount of software. So if you look at, I mentioned a minute ago, my workforce is you know roughly 2,000 people, probably half are actually software engineers. So even in something as, as hardware specific as a semiconductor, a chip, you have a tremendous amount of software that goes into that, whether that's low level, trying to talk to the chip itself, applications code, creating something that people can use on their phone, uh, machine learning models, we have people that do those and compile those into the chip itself. A lot, a lot of software engineering happens at Synaptics and any other, Intel, any other big semiconductor company, actually now is probably more software than hardware. It's, uh, it, the world has changed a lot. Only the very small component companies that may do single transistors or power or something like that, they don't have as many software engineers, if any, but anything that's more complex has a huge, huge amount of software engineers as well as hardware. Of course, companies like Apple, any other hardware company has a heck of a lot of software engineering that goes into it. Right. Well, and you mentioned 2,000 employees around the world. Um, I'm struck by the interesting labor market we're living in right now. Uh, can you speak both to how you find the talent you're looking for, but also maybe how our students that might be interested in being that talent, how they can make themselves competitive for, for roles of that sort? Yeah, I mean, the labor market, it's, it's a great time to be in engineering. There's no question about it. The labor market is, is super hot. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. In the semiconductor business in particular, it, the pendulum has swung really far, really fast. It just in December, I talked a minute ago about the shortages. And Pat Gelsinger, the CEO of Intel, was on 60 Minutes talking about the supply chain crunch and things like that. And now here we are in the summertime and into the early fall, and the semiconductor supply chain has been largely resolved. Stock prices, my, my company in December of 2000, uh, just December of the last year, 2021, I guess it is, we were trading at $300 a share. Now we're trading at $80, $90 a share. So this thing has moved really far, really fast. And in the labor markets, we've gone from a situation where you couldn't hire people because um, everybody had five or six different offers. I mean, the market was unbelievably hot as an engineer to a situation now where people are very worried about layoffs. There was a big announcement from Intel, they're gonna lay off 20% of the workforce. Now nobody wants to move, so we still can't hire people 
because people don't want to move from company A to company B. They're very nervous about job security and things like that. So it's actually a great time to be coming into the workforce because there's still a huge demand for, for labor. Um, and there is, uh, it's very hard to get experienced labor because at this, at this particular point in time, nobody wants to change jobs anymore. Everybody wants to stay in their seat. So as a, uh, somebody who's coming out of, of Davis with a degree, I think you're going to be in, in great, great shape. The other thing I comment on, and I've been on you know, CNBC and, and other programs talking about this, we have a huge problem in this country, and that is that there are very few American-born engineers. We just don't have American-educated, American-born engineers. There are just far too few, so we have a big problem in the industry where we're having to go overseas to China, to India, to other locations to try to get engineering talent. And again, people who are coming out of the U.S. school system, I think, have a huge advantage because the immigration policies and the, all the things that are happening around the world to kind of become tighter in terms of the United States and Europe and China and India. Each geography now is trying to kind of do their own thing. I, I think it's an unbelievably good time to be coming out of school. Interesting. So I, I like where you're going with this, and I want to maybe pivot just a smidge here, talking about labor from all over the planet, different countries. Um, in your biography, you mentioned this idea of launching a company kind of right in the middle of the dot-com crash. Um, so forgive me for getting a little macroeconomic on you, but uh, I'm curious first, with that experience a long time ago, how, how you were impacted by what we'll call these world events maybe outside of your control. Because I want to revisit that same question today when we talk about some of the, the challenges, uh, you know, wars in Eastern Europe and economic crises between countries and how this impacts a global company. So may, maybe we start with launching in, in the dot-com era and then and coming back to, to here. Yeah, no, it's a, good, it's a good question. Look, I think in the dot-com era, there was a whole different set of circumstances. I think that there was an incredible run-up in the stock market and valuations for emerging companies because there was a lot of liquidity, meaning a lot of money floating around in the market that was looking for places to go. So people were pumping money into these startup companies and had no idea what they were doing. The internet in the late 90s was relatively new. People really didn't understand what was going to make money and people actually didn't spend time trying to figure out if the idea was a good one. And there was a lot of really crappy ideas that got a tremendous amount of money and funding. The example, you know, Aaron and I probably know well, pets.com, which was like this nutty, nutty idea. But these, these, these companies got huge valuations and, and, and it was just insane. That is a totally different problem to the one that's, that's happening now. This problem in the, in the economy is actually quite serious. I think it's, the first time in history that you've seen all three major glo global economies, the United States, Europe, and China, heading for likely recession. Usually when there's a recession, one, maybe two economies go into recession. This time I think all three are headed for recession. And if you see the situation, if we think we're in, in bad shape here, um, it doesn't compare to the situation in Europe. Europe is facing an unbelievable energy problem. 
because they've cut off supply from, from Russia, compounded with higher inflation than we have in the United States, compounded by an, a foreign exchange problem that's unprecedented. To see that the English pound is trading at almost one-to-one -to, -one to the dollar, the euro is actually below the dollar. We've never seen this set of circumstances before. Europe is in bad, bad shape. China is a very interesting situation because nobody kind of knows what's happening in China. Nobody really understands. They don't publish their economic numbers like we do in the United States or in Europe. Nobody really understands. But I can tell you is I think it's in really, really, really bad shape. There's been this, if you've ever been to China, there was an unbelievable build out of uh, real estate. People were throwing up these, they would talk about these cities of nothing, right? Where you have these big builds of cities and no people in these cities. Well, this real estate bubble in China is crashing. It's really a problem. The central bank in China actually is in relatively good shape because they pushed all the problems to the regional banks out in the provinces. And those, those regional banks are allegedly in some serious trouble. And then compound that with their COVID policies. I think it's, uh, it's a big, big problem in China. And again, we don't really know what the magnitude is and we probably won't know until it's far too late. But uh, I think, I think uh, we're headed for a, a very bumpy, bumpy ride for a couple of years in the macro economy. Okay, so with that said then, you know, for students who maybe want to launch a company or, or work in the tech world, how do you navigate macro forces out of your control and still maintain success at the micro level? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's, it, it, it's all about the idea, Aaron, right? I think at the end of the day, good ideas are going to get funding no matter what. Money is harder. I'm, I'm a big, big investor. I do a lot of uh, invest, significant amount of investing in small companies. We had a pitch last night from an AI company doing, actually applying uh, uh, AI to in vitro fertilization of all things. A lot of great ideas that are out there. And I think the great ideas are going to get funded. It'll be harder. There's no doubt that capital now is a lot harder to come by than it was even six months ago. But great ideas will get funded. And in this particular meeting last night, I entered with a great degree of skepticism around what this particular guy was, was trying to pull off. But by the end of the meeting, um, you know, we were willing to commit some significant money to his idea because it really is a very, very good one. So I think as people are thinking about starting new companies, it's, it's about the idea. The idea itself, as long as it's strong, there's still plenty of money out there to get, to get funding, to attract people to the idea, to build a workforce around the idea, and ultimately have a great degree of success. I, I love this idea of you know the idea itself being this key differentiator. When you look at startup pitches, think about tech companies, what what are you looking for? And what makes an idea a good one in your opinion versus a bad one? Yeah, I think it's it, it has to attack a real problem. Right, so it has to be a differentiated idea. Hey, I haven't seen that before. I don't know another company that's trying to do it in that way. And it has to be defensible. In other words, it, it's a good idea that doesn't have patent protection or anything like that. Somebody can quickly catch up in two weeks, right? That's not a great idea. So as long as the idea is really attacking a problem, problem people care about, that it's differentiated, it's a new and novel idea, and there's protection around it, it's, it's pretty investable. Um, you know, and on the other hand, I had a, 
a pitch from somebody who was trying to come up with a product that would basically evaluate salespeople. If you have a salesperson on your workforce, how is that person performing? And it essentially, it was like a, a survey tool that would go out to customers that that person was interfacing with and ask you for feedback on the salesperson. That, I thought, was a really crappy idea. I didn't see differentiate, hey, I can go to SurveyMonkey and get this done, right? I didn't really see where that was going to come in. It was not necessarily defensible, and, and, and I didn't see a lot of differentiation in it. So that one we, we didn't fund. But, you know, you talk about, like, in vitro fertilization, hey, this is a real problem. This guy was able to build a whole machine learning model around, you know, other patients that had been through it, their success factors, their patient characteristics, and then try to design a set of programs and, 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 and uses for the doctors to then assign care to that person, particular person. I was like, hey, that, that works, right? That's a really good idea. So I thought it was differentiated. I thought it was defensible, and I thought it was really attacking a real problem. Not a huge market, but there's enough money in it that I think it eventually will see success. Uh, you know, a, a real pain, I, I gotta get that pain solved. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so we're about halfway through our time already. I have monopolized the questions. I wanna reach out to the audience. Um, let's give you a chance to ask some of your questions. So let's, yeah, raise your hand and fire away, please. Hi, right, first of all, thank you for having the session. The answers were pretty good. I just uh, want to understand, like, we see a lot of the culture at big tech companies, like, uh, companies in the Man Plus area, and we see how the culture is, but it's very rare that we see uh, the culture or how the company actually operates when it comes to the back end of tech, which is things like semiconductors. So how is it actually working at a company like that? How different is it, or is it just the same? Is it still the Silicon Valley environment, or is it a little different from that? Super question. Um, you know, I think the cult, I'd like to think the culture is very Silicon Valley. I have to admit, because of some of the problems that I mentioned earlier in terms of attracting people like you into the business, our demographic is older. So semiconductor demographic, generally speaking, is, is an older demographic. And bringing in younger people has proven to be a problem. One, because the view, I think, is, hey, working for Google, for Facebook is much sexier. Um, we tend to pay actually more than the Googles and the Facebooks and things like that. Um, but for whatever reason right now, it's less in vogue. I, I hope that some of these problems that have happened in terms of showing the criticality of the semiconductor ecosystem, one, with the trade, right? We shut basically shut China down because of semiconductors. And two, because of the supply chain shortages, right? You can't run. Facebook without semiconductors. You can't run Google without semiconductors. I hope that this gets a new wave of uh, newer students, graduate students into into our business. But that's the big difference. I would say that's the big difference. If you walk around our campus, there's fewer. The demographic is, is, is definitely a little bit older. And we're looking. We're really hungry to bring in younger people into the company. Super question. Other questions? Please. Yeah. Yeah. As the world is now changing towards like computational power, like focus on computational powers, like supercomputers and quantum computers. So like what is your take on quantum computers basically? Yeah, look, I think it's 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 really, really 
an area that that's going gangbusters. Um, there's many, many, many startups trying to chase that business. I think it, it, it's going to be something that is just a tip of the iceberg. I think we're just getting to a point where we can really have applicability for AI and for these computer models. It just We're just scratching the surface, right? It's beginning. So I think this is going to be a huge trend. As I said, our take is a little bit different because this heavy compute in the data center has its own problems. It has a lot of power, real estate. There's a lot of problems that go with it. And so we're trying to come up with ideas where you push some of this compute out to the edge, not inbound. But there's no question. I mean, this is going to be quantum computing is a huge area of investment. And one, we don't have the, really the skill set to attack it. If we did, we'd probably spend more time and energy. I have a follow-up question to yeah. that. Uh, so do you think right now, like if you have an idea about quantum computing startups or stuff like that, uh, would it be investable in like good enough to for, for the investors to invest in it in the near future? It's it's a higher bar. It's a higher bar. The reason it's a higher bar is because the capital that it would probably take to get one of those over the goal line is more. So if you think about some of these machine learning companies, some of the uh, software companies, the capex, the capital expenditure required to get those over the goal line is, is not so much, right? You don't need as much money to get that done. But for quantum computing, typically you need semiconductors, you need hardware, you need a lot of things that require a lot of money. And so the idea has to be particular, solve a particular problem, be particularly differentiated, and have particular protections around it in order to be funded. It absolutely can't. I mean, there's tons of money going into this area, but the bar is just a little bit higher than it is for other start kinds of ideas. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, the semiconductor industry is becoming more based on software engineering. What aspects of the physical kind of engineering are still in the semiconductor industry? Yeah, I mean, the, the chip design itself obviously is very hardware intensive. It goes back to the fundamentals of driving a transistor, drive, putting a circuit. All of that is, is very, very hardware intensive and, and focused on the basics of semiconductor engineering. But if you think about a, a Wi-Fi chip, right, which, you know, again, I, I, we had a big hand in sort of creating Wi-Fi. There's a radio, right? What, what's actually sending out the signals back and forth to the access point? Well, that's an RF, that's radio. That is hardware, hardware centric, right? You, you have a lot of black art in the pure circuit design of a radio circuit. Then behind that is, okay, now I have my radio circuit. I've converted that to digital, right? You have to digitize the, the RF traffic. Now I put it down to digital. Well, there's a huge amount of digital circuitry that decides what to do with that. How to, if you're in an access point, how do I move the traffic from one client to another? How do I decode what I've received? That's all again, circuit engineering, digital logic, right? Digital design. But then to actually get the chip to work and to act, work in an access point, you have a set of software that's firmware that's just talking to the chip itself and driving how the chip operates, very chip-specific software. But then you have application code. When I log into the access point, 
what is my user interface, what commands am I allowed to do. That's what we call application layer software. So there's a lot that goes into a semiconductor, some of which is hardware, and then there's a lot of, of software. Good question. Yeah. You said that uh, like your fourth company failed, like the one you founded yourself. What did you learn from that? And like because because of the fact that it was like during the dot com era, which was also like a big recession, what learnings have you taken into now because the world economy is going into a recession as well? Yeah, great question. I mean, actually, at the time, right, in the sort of you, you had both both parts of it. it. There was a big run up, right, in the dot com, the the leading edge of it. Everything was going great, and uh, my company was not. So I was like the one failure out of you know twenty thousand semiconductor companies or companies that were out there, whether they were software or semiconductor. What mistake did we make? Right, we were chasing a market. So at that time, in the late nineties. There was the TV was analog, right? It was still being transmitted over the air using analog, analog transmission. They over the air TV, of course, cable was coming in, satellite was coming in, but the in order to fulfill some FCC requirements, over the air TV was switching to digital. And we had a solution that basically could resolve over the air digital TV. We were actually first to market with, with this chip that could, could do that. But the FCC and the government actually slowed that transition. It eventually happened, right? But today, there is no more analog TV. The airwaves have been totally clear of analog TV for about 20 years now. But we called that market transition too early. We thought we were gonna be right in the middle of it. It took a lot longer. And instead of kind of being patient and waiting, because we, we had a really differentiated solution, we panicked a little bit and then we said, okay, now we're gonna chase a totally different market. We went after the precursor to Wi-Fi. There was this idea of, of broadband internet over wireless, but it was much broader. It was not a local area of land, a local area network. It was more of a wide area network. And we took all our engineering team and we went after that instead of kind of staying put. And that was a huge mistake. We kind of doubled our workforce, the customers. We went from Sony and Panasonic and Samsung to dealing with operators like AT&T. It was a totally different customer base, kind of a different technology. It was not very good. It was a very stupid idea to do that, to, to, to divert. And so, you know, now as I think about our business today, we definitely don't do that. I won't do that anymore. I won't do these radical departures. I also don't like, as a more mature company, we're a public company. So we have responsibility to shareholders and other things. So generally speaking, I don't take big risks on market. Like he was asking about quantum computing. That's a really good idea. I would never get into anything like that. I'd let the startup companies do that. And if the startup companies succeed, I can buy the startup company. But I don't want to take market risk because I think that's, I have to be more conservative now in, in this kind of role. Super question. Are your Dodgers gonna do it? Honestly, I don't watch baseball, I just like. Oh, you like the hat, okay. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, I don't like the Dodgers, but okay. Yeah. All right, what else? Yeah. Okay. Um, so just now all of the questions has been like really, really technical. And so maybe from a perspective of 
uh, people who might want to found a small business or medium-sized business, how do we actually implement the AI that you said is the most interesting in like uh, technology world right now? How do we actually use that uh, to leverage our business or like it's just not the right timing for small and medium business? No, no, I think, I, I, I think that now if you're doing tech of some variety or another, you have to think about AI. How can I use AI in almost anything that you do? So I gave this example of having artificial intelligence on a chip at the edge of a network. That's kind of complicated. But you, we actually will say, and it's somewhat true, we have a set of products that go into TV sets that do video, we call video decoding. They basically show images on a TV set. And we say that we employ artificial intelligence in those TV chips. So we're able to use the term, and it's kind of true, right? When you have sharp edges on the image, those the, predicting where those sharp edges are going to come up before they do is actually important in showing how a TV image is displayed. And so we actually use AI, some kind of AI, to predict where these edges are going to be and then employ some softening techniques and some display techniques to make sure it shows up as sharply and clearly as possible. This is kind of marketing, right? But almost anything, almost all of our products in some way, shape, or form, we talk about implementation of AI. If you're thinking about a startup company, you have to think about how can I position it, right, whether right or wrong, that it uses artificial intelligence. Otherwise, it's very difficult now to get funding because everybody thinks that this is the way of the future. Everybody thinks that you have to have some element of AI in your corporate idea, in your business plan. Otherwise, no way. Mm, sorry. So uh, were you like referring to like tech-based companies or even those that are really tech-based? Should they actually look into this AI and how can they actually implement it? Yeah, I mean, what, what I mean is if you're a tech company, you have to think about how I use AI for my problem, whatever it is. I, I gave an example earlier about IVF, in vitro fertilization. There's AI. I've worked in tech companies. I started a tech company that was doing AI for news programs, identifying where different parts of a news clip were. If I wanted to see a fire, okay, there it is. I can resolve that on the feed. Um, in our case, we're trying to apply AI to semiconductors. Almost every idea that I've seen recently, as I said, I'm an investor in many, many different companies. Those ideas have to incorporate AI in some way, shape, or form. I did a medical company um, that does catheters, okay, for leg. It's lower extremity catheters. And this company was uh, saying that they were using AI to build a model of the vein because the failure rate of the catheter normally without building an AI reconstruction of the vein in the leg, the chances of that failing and you needing a second operation are very, very high. So every idea should, can or should employ AI. That's the, that's the point. I, hopefully that, that came across. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you determine when the right timing is? Like you, with your original company, you got to enter too early, so 
How are you supposed to dodge when the best time ends? Again, super question. I don't know if there's a good answer. Um, that is kind of the magic. I mean, a lot of companies, many, many companies, mostly most companies fail actually on timing. The idea is a, a good one, but it's either too early or too late for a market window. And we have products. I mean, and now as a mature company, our biggest problem is hitting market windows. Are you too early or too late? And getting that just right is a trick. You know, even as a multi-billion dollar company, I wouldn't say we have a perfect success rate and we're in most of these markets. So we can kind of see them moving and okay, there's a, a transition coming, we will miss. There's not a, not a good answer. If you get it right, the idea itself is, is often not what sinks companies, it's the timing. Super, super good question. What else? Fine. So I'm interested in the gap between being an individual technical contributor and being a leader. So a couple things specifically. So what made you interested in that kind of responsibility? And what kinds of skills did you need to pick up or sharpen in order to be effective? Okay, good, good, good. thank you. Um, look, I, I, uh, I said a minute ago that I started my career as an engineer. I was a classically trained engineer. And I, I shouldn't say this to, to all of you, but actually I was a really crappy engineer. I was lousy. And uh, I spent the first three or four years doing circuit design, classically trained engineering stuff. And A, I wasn't good at it. And B, I was kind of bored out of my mind. Okay, so I shifted to marketing. I was lucky enough to, to get this business degree from UC Davis. And I remember I went and applied for a marketing job in the company and said, okay, well, how about if I do marketing? You're an engineer, you can't do marketing. Oh, but I have this piece of paper. Actually, they made me go home and get my degree and just and show it so it's the first time that actually that degree was worth something I actually had to show, come in and show it um and then you know i really like that part of the job to don to don's question i now interface you had more people interaction i was able to go talk to people and i you know i was i don't know right or wrong i was considered a pretty good marketing guy because i had a technical background i did understand the technology relatively well even though i was a lousy engineer but i was able then to kind of bridge that and explain that to our prospective customers and i think that really fuels success if you kind of like what you're doing if you're not really don't really care about it all that much it's hard to be good at it if you really like what you're doing, I think the success naturally follows, right? It's like, okay, I, I, I wake up, I'm excited to go to work and, and do what I do. Um, you know, from there, uh, kind of leading lots of people, I think, again, this is a fine art. You either have it or you don't, unfortunately. I think it's very difficult to learn, but it's mostly about communicate i think more than anything else it's mostly about communication right if you are able to communicate well then i think that leads to success if you're not a good communicator you, it's very difficult to be a good leader one because you're it's hard to set expectation two it's hard to communicate a vision hey where are we going to go three it's hard to get inspire people and get people rallied behind you and i think 
it's difficult. Sometimes it's difficult to teach some of that. But I think if you are a good communicator, then the chances that you become a good leader are a lot higher. I don't know if that answered your question, Don, but mm -hmm. super. So, Michael, I'm actually really curious to follow up on this. So, you know, you have this engineering background, trend marketing, clearly executive roles recently. I feel like there's this tension between wanting to get really deep in a topic and having depth of knowledge like nobody else has in whatever thing you want to be expert at versus breadth of knowledge and being able to transcend different roles. Do you see a tension there? And if so, where would you err on the side of? Would you recommend students get really, really broad or deep in their in their knowledge and experience? Yeah, again, I think it's a good a good topic. Look, I, I think as a design, that was my struggle actually with with design engineering. You're trying to solve one problem and go very deep on that one problem, and I just simply wasn't good at it. I didn't have the concentration. I mean, many of you who are good engineers, it takes a long time to solve some of these really difficult problems. And I think many people are really good at that. I have design engineers that work for me today that can run circles around me and their ability to concentrate, focus, and get a job done is second to none. I just simply can't do that. I'm not good. I start, oh, think daydreaming and thinking about, you know, God knows what, but I, I can't, I can't concentrate for the amount of time that it takes to really do an engineering job well, right? What I can do is sort of multitask. I mean, the typical day for me yesterday, I was being asked, okay, make a decision about a Christmas party. And then, oh, make a decision about this product. Is this a good product idea or not? Oh, let's make a decision about some legal issue, right? So I, I'm, I am able to kind of get the essence of an issue relatively quickly and make decisions, sometimes wrong decisions, right, relatively fast. That's what I'm good at, right? I'm not good at concentrating and focusing. I'm good at kind of being able to go, as Aaron said, very, very wide and understand the essence of the issue and then provide some input or make a decision that has some basis in fact. And again, I'm, I'm wrong a lot, but at least I, I, I kind of make a decision and, and we're able to move on. That's my skill set. That's what I'm good at. And I think to Aaron's question, you know, it really depends on what you're good at. You know yourself better than anybody. And what you're good at is what you're going to be successful at. If you're, you know, not a good piano player, I wouldn't recommend going to try to play the piano, right? If you're not a good basketball player, don't be a basketball player. It's not going to work out very well. If you're not good at, you know, sitting down and, and, and solving deep technical problems, you don't enjoy it. Well, don't do that. Try to find something that really marries your individual skill set. That's going to be where you have the most success. Awesome. Okay, we've got one last question here before we got to kind of wrap up time. But before we started, you were mentioning to me you do some mentoring. You work with folks extracurricularly. You mentioned your personal investments you like to do. I want to hear your thoughts on work-life balance, uh, pursuing personal goals. I know you got a great family. Like how, as as an executive of a publicly traded global company, how do you how do you balance all of that? How do you think about that? You know, it was a, I give this example. It's not a, it's going to be a good answer, but it, I gave the, I gave this answer. Um, when I was a kid, my parents, you know, probably like many of your parents, were, were very focused on education. And the one thing that they always made me do was go to bed very early. Okay, so 
I remember my friends would be up until midnight, whatever. No, my uh, my bedtime was like eight, and then I was able to stretch it occasionally to nine o'clock. And my dad, even when I was in high school, they're like super religious about going to bed at like a reasonable time. And um, I I call out my deposits into the sleep bank. So I made a lot of deposits early on. Now I'm making a lot of withdrawals. <laughs> a lot of withdrawals. Um, you know, Aaron's right. I. I have, I'm lucky enough, I've got, I've got two kids that are sort of roughly your ages, I guess. Um, I, I do a lot of sports, right? I'm lucky enough to, to, I really enjoy, I run every single day about six miles. So I get out for, you know, some period of time. I play a lot of tennis. Um, I do a lot in the community. We spend a lot of time as a company sort of volunteering and, and doing activities like that. I'm on boards. Um, I'm lucky enough to be on the board of one of the biggest companies in the world, Flextronics, which is a 260,000-person co company. Uh, I help startups. I'm on boards of, of startup companies. Uh, I'm an investor, as Aaron said. I spend a lot of time listening to different pitches. But what what eventually something has to give, and what gives for me is sleep. I don't sleep a lot. I'm lucky enough to be able to get by on four or five hours a night and i've been running that way for a long long time i think it goes back to the sleep deposits and uh i don't know that i have good work-life balance because i'm always doing something i mean i'm one of these people that just again it's sort of i know myself if i'm on a beach sitting there that's not for me right i'm always doing something so every minute is filled with something and that something coupled with not a lot of sleep enables me Fortunately, to cover a hell of a lot of ground. Okay, so everybody sleep now. You all in the future. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so much Aaron, for your time. You. We failed to uh, give a round of applause.